I'm Andrew Faust with Permaculture Perspectives. This is our Permaculture Living Lands Trust listening series number three. This is an excellent and inspiring and in-depth interview with Buzz Fervor of Perfect Circle Farm. Sit back and enjoy our exploration of anthropogenic landscapes for future generations to inherit, to find themselves in a land of bounty and abundance where huge nuts are falling into their canoes as they are enjoying the beauty of productive multifunctional riparian buffer zones. Buzz and I explore the history of the John Hershey trees. John Hershey was a good friend and colleague of J. Russell Smith who wrote the seminal text on tree crops in North America. It is entitled Tree Crops, a Permanent Agriculture from 1924. He was a professor at Columbia University and at Wharton School of Business. Buzz and I talk about the history of the national support for the research and development of tree crops, nut trees, fruit trees throughout the United States, and what happened to those endeavors, why they didn't continue, and how to re-enliven them and bring that bounty back into our lives today and for future generations to inherit a truly indigenous ecology that is cultivated by people, for people, and to enhance biodiversity and ecological resilience. Enjoy this session, sit back, and learn from Buzz and I exploring a very important topic to us, both at the present time in terms of addressing climate irregularities and climate chaos, as well as addressing the tendency in this country to squander what it is that we already had here 500 years ago that indigenous cultures had created, that we decimated and destroyed, and how to bring back that vitality and that vigor with human intention. Yo! Hey! Good morning, Buzz. <laughs> how are you Good. I, it is mm. afternoon, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. <clears throat> Daylight well, thanks, savings. Thanks for joining me on the Permaculture Perspectives podcast conversations here. Is this I've audio been, or video conversation? I'll, I may, if you're amenable, I'll post the video, but mainly it's audio. Okay, well, you can decide after you. Yeah. How oh, I love it, it. It's funny how people like watching people talk on cameras, and that's a YouTube video. All these podcasts do that. Yeah. Post their conversations. Okay, so, yeah. I'm open to that. Yeah. yeah it's, it, I just want to make sure my hair looks good, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> man did you guys get some snow down there did you we did yeah. Thank, thankful for it's uh you know keeping keeping the trees flowing that we had a longer than usual maple water run thanks to the protracted winter temperatures um yeah it's we got a lot of snow here now it's two feet on the ground here wow did you get a lot of that in the last one uh, we got over a foot in the last one, yeah, and there was already a foot from the two that were before that, you know? Yeah. That was left. It's a lot of snow right now. Everybody's whining. I fucking love it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're able to get into a lot of places in this time of year with the snow? No, man, I just stay home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I nice. wait for the snow to leave, then I go to Yeah, I, I went to you. I like doing that, too. Yeah, this, this is my productive reading time. I catch exactly. up. Exactly, that, that. that's yep. a good name for it. I think I'm gonna start calling it that. This is my productive <laughs> yeah. reading time. Yeah, it's important. 
I have oh, so many books. Dude, I it's a such it's a as you know, you know, once the the weather does its flip and we're in the farming season with what I'm doing, you know, it's we're yep. seven days a week until probably till almost till Thanksgiving. So I'm happy for a uh, a day when I can say, you know, it's kind of crappy out there and too much snow. I think I'm just going to wait another week before I go on my next sandwood gathering trip. Right. Yeah. And read some more of Luther Burbank's memoirs and exactly <laughs> or or whatever. Or go have wife with my go have coffee with my wife, you know. Yeah, right. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So Buzz, I'm excited to, to take the time to just talk with you about the perma, you know, the the permaculture thinking behind some of your work. I was, you know, I was looking at Perfect Circle Farm website and Having known you for years, I wanted to, you know, not take for granted knowing a lot about your history. And it was fascinating to read what you wrote there about um, the, the work you did in the, the mushroom farms in Pennsylvania yep. and building compost. And, yep. and I remembered when we were at Yestermorrow together, some of the textile fabrics that you were working with for remediation with compost and yeah that whole journey that you went on with those developments and those product sectors and then your work at Intervale and you just you just touched not in a positive way on that whole act 250 thing right and that's uh, well act 250 is very is very positive as a so, as yeah so illuminate me on that i wondered what well, you so act two, words about well, it so let's just give a little background so that people listening in case this actually yeah. makes it. So Thank you. Um, I'm in Vermont um, and I'm in, uh, well, then I was living in Worcester, Vermont and working in Burlington, Vermont at the Intervale. So the Burlington Intervale, now called the Intervale Center, I think, mm -hmm. um, is a farmer incubator. They have, I don't know, a lot of land, 100 acres or something right downtown Burlington in the floodplain of the Winooski. Um, which was, of course was the, one of the principal areas where the Abenaki people lived and hunted and you know, they used that for, their, for, for production for their food. And so now you got all the, um, um, a bunch of farmers that are in there growing in this beautiful, gorgeous soil. And they had the interval compost that was there, which was started a long time ago by a great cast of characters, uh, including Will Rapp and Carl Hammer and a couple other people in order to, you know, the idea was to you know, take the organics wastes from the city of Burlington and turn that into a usable compost for the farmers at the interval to use. And then it grew from there. Um, and it grew, got to be pretty big for Vermont scale. You know, I'm always telling people here, like there are no big composters in Vermont. No one comes close to a large composter here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, as far as what I, where I've worked and what I've seen, but it was pretty big for the state of Vermont. And as it grew and grew and grew, um, you know, it, uh, it was operating uh, um, as not as a commercial operation, but as a farming operation, which means it was exempted from the, the, the state permitting for commercial activities, which is called Act 250, which I believe went in 1972. Very progressive and has really helped Vermont stay as beautiful as it has been. It has its issues like any law does is not 100% positive, but I, I think it's a very good um, method for, you know, reviewing and making sure the community knows what's going to happen and getting community input for commercial activities that are going to take place. Mm -hmm. 
Well, when they hired me um, at the time, my principal role there was to help kind of upgrade facilities, which had been operating for, I think, maybe 10 years. Um, and there was, you know, some things that needed to be done, like giving them more space and better management of their um, their runoff and things like that. And we started all that work with my understanding that we were exempt from that Act 250, um, which, in fact, we were not. Mm. And so I got caught up right in the middle of that. I've done all kinds of work there, including, you know, changing the grades and digging larger retention areas and raising the grade that had been lowered where the soil had been scraped away from years of turning the compost with loaders. Mm -hmm. And of course, no one, no one told me that that I was brand new to Vermont. I came here in, uh, in summer and was hired in the late fall, early winter and started working in the, in the wintertime, early spring and went right to work on the site improvements. And no one told me that that was one of the most significant uh, Abenaki sites in the state nor that it had, you know, burial grounds and all kinds of archaeological things that had been identified at other times, like when they built the McNeil generating plant, which is a, a you know, a, a wood-fired generating plant right next door to, in the intervale, in the floodplain. Mm -hmm. um, when they got that built, they did all kinds of archaeological studies and found, anyway, so I never knew any of this. So I lost a lot of sleep. Um, over what I had, what had happened there without really anyone giving me any kind of background. You know, coming from Pennsylvania, I had no idea what Act 250 was. Right. And had no idea what the historical um, history of this place was until I got into the middle of this wrangle. And the interview compost actually had to leave there and is no more. They're now, they're called Green Mountain Compost and they were, um, taken under the wing of the Chittenden Solid Waste District, which that's Chittenden County, Vermont. And mm -hmm. so that Solid Waste District uh, took it over and moved it um, to a uh, site that they had been holding for a landfill, which never was needed or permitted, and put that compost site there. And it's all done in vessel there. They have a very much, a much tighter ship. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not outside. So, yeah, so I had a great time making improvements and meeting all the people at the Interrail and getting connected to the state that way. But, boy, that was a very difficult time in my life as far as understanding, like, what I had been involved in. And I really, quite frankly, I felt quite hoodwinked mm -hmm. by the people involved. <laughs> I was, yeah. I, I'm still not very happy about all that. Yeah. So Yeah. I mean, is that, were you coming, in effect, straight from the work in Pennsylvania with the mushroom houses and the composting operations there? Um, yeah. Actually, yeah. I, I did. I was working for Laurel Valley Soils. I helped set them up. And they're probably one of the top three or four in the country as far as production. You know, they were doing, at the time, they were transitioning from, uh, you know, turn piles to in-vessel, you know, aerated floor in-vessel. Uh, as I was there, and, you know, the, uh, they were 5,000 cubic yards of compost a week. 365 weeks a year. Mm -hmm. And now they're 10,000, as far as I can understand. They've doubled their operation. Um, going to um, aerated floor gave them a much, much more production with, with less space. Mm -hmm. And so my job, on the, I worked for two of the biggest ones down there. And my job in both places was to, to help them adapt to the concept that there were no more farms in Chester County that they could take and put this soil mushroom compost on let it break down um, um, and then use it for growing higher crops. 
that all the those these mushroom farmers all had land and all that land was being turned into tract houses. You've been to Chester County. You grew up in Chester County. You that's know what right. I'm talking about. Yeah. So when right. I left Chester County in 2004, there were 10,000 permits open for new houses. Uh-huh. And I don't know how that's changed, but you know, it's, it's still got some development going on. Yeah. And so they, they had to deal with the fact they had nowhere to put this. They tried to put it in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. They tried to move it all to Lancaster County. The <laughs> one farm I was working for in Lancaster County shut them down. So they had to find a way to how do we take this product and more rapidly turn it into a usable product that can then be sold. So my job was making the spent, the spent mushroom compost um, ready for horticultural use. Mm -hmm. I came from the horticultural background and mm -hmm. I did a very good job for both these two growers and Laurel Valley soils is still, they're operating um, exactly as, or they've been made a bunch of improvements, pretty much exactly as I left it all those years ago. Shoot. That's 20, 20 some year, 20 years ago. Yeah. 20 years ago, almost. Yeah. And so you've been, Pursuing some composting endeavors on your property there in Berlin, right? Yeah. In yeah. corners. Yeah, and I do. We um we make or I was making quite a bit of compost. I still make some, not as much as I was, but I'm still making quite a bit. And the food scraps scenario, what happened with the Yeah, the that's a whole nother great story about, you know, um politics and government and people. It's like the uh Yeah. A yep. long, long history of taking food scraps in by one composter in particular, Carl Hammer at Vermont Compost, uh, including plenty of memos from the state indicating that it was uh, it was legal and not um, regulated by the Agency of Natural Resources. Mm -hmm. And uh, they changed their mind on that. And so they made the importation of food scraps to the farm uh, was no longer farming. Um, and so I was feeding my birds. I had 300 and some chickens laying chickens at the time. And they were getting a diet of hundred percent food scraps. And then mm -hmm. we're, we were managing it here with, um, uh, you know, high carbon bulking agent, mostly wood chips, yeah, hay and straw, um, some other manures to make them make it a better blend. Of course, all the chicken manure and then the chicken, the food scraps that didn't get consumed by the chickens. It was a really nice little operation. And that got shut down. It was it was illegal. Well, we were exempted from the because we, we when they made it that illegal or they changed that law that rule because it wasn't law. It was just a rule change. Um, we were exempted. The people that were already operating doing this were exempted from that. Um, uh, you know, we could continue to do it yeah. for a while because we took it to the legislature. And asked the legislature here to help us change this so that we could continue to do this because, quite frankly, it's a really great idea. Take mm -hmm. all the waste food. You know, if you look at the typical landfill um, inputs, twenty five percent is um, food scrap. Right, and that's a low estimate. Yeah. Well, that's the that's the estimate. For the, that was the you know estimate from. Uh, a biocycle magazine year after year after year was 25%, you know, 25% was food scraps. Um, so there's a lot of food that was going into the landfill. Of course, that is illegal now in Vermont. They're still, I think they're still transitioning to deal with it all, but no more food scraps are allowed in the landfill. They have to find another use. And we're still going through growing pains on that law. But this, uh, when they shut down food scraps, when they made it illegal to the farmers to 
to get it, even though they, we were exempted from that while we were going through the legislature. The people that were collecting and delivering the food scraps, you know, they, they had to deal with reality. If, if we did not get it turned around as, to make it legal, they had nowhere to put their stuff. So they actually made a deal with a, a um, digester in, the, in Maine. And so all the food scraps from central Vermont were going to Maine to be used for energy production in a digester. And that my food scraps dried up. And so we've been feeding grain for, well, the three ensuing years, almost four years now, I think. Mm-hmm. We've been feeding grain, three years, I think, feeding grain 100%. We maybe feed 80, 85%. We still get a little food scrap and the birds forage. So, you know, of the food we have to supply, um, it's probably 80% um, grain. And then, you know, between them foraging and the little bit of food scraps, we still get people come and deliver and drop off. We have a tote here and people just fill it up and, and of course, our food scraps. We've got one or two restaurants that still come here and drop off. Mm-hmm. But that was a major bummer because that was a really sweet little system. And um, I'm well, hoping as time goes on, we'll, be, we'll get food scraps back. Right. So we'll see. I'm, I'm the eternal optimist when it comes to that kind of common sense thinking, you know, which you think right. by now, you think by now I wouldn't have quite that much optimism. But <laughs> I'm a pretty optimistic person. Would you, could you share a little with me your, you know, what I like to ask people about your, you know, your journey to permaculture, so to speak, like what are some of the, you know, things you'd want to share about what kind of brought that to your language set, to your thinking about some of the work you're doing? Yeah. So um, I was always really interested in trees and plants. You read my history, you know, some of my earliest memories are like, you know, this crab apple tree or you know, the privet hedge in my backyard or whatever it might be. Poplar tree. Um, yep. Yeah. Poplar tree with the rope swing, right? In my back yeah. in my backyard. And that backyard was 20 foot square, by the way, Andrew. Uh-huh. 20 this is a row house, you know, Wilmington. Right. 20 by 20 in the backyard. And of course, when you're five, six, it seems pretty big. And then we had a real nice field behind us, the ball field and the park, and then a there were two woods and south woods and the north woods. And so I spent a lot of time, even at five and six years old, because we moved out of there when I was seven. So I had to have all this half stuff happen when I was five and six. Um, and so that's always been like something I've really been drawn to. And I also figured out, you know, um, you know, in my late teens, early 20s, that I really like to build. I love building houses and buildings and farms and buildings and barns and commercial work and adaptive reuse, turning, you know, warehouses into housing or whatever. I love that. So I did that work off and on, well, since 1980 um, with a couple of stints thrown in there for, uh, I did, was an engineer for an automotive tool and equipment manufacturing place. Uh, and then the compost, I did work for the comp, two composting operations. That was a couple of years, each of them. And then the, uh, you know, compost for stormwater. I did that for a couple of years too, tossed in there. And so pretty much got myself extricated from building now. I'm pretty much just sticking with the farming and growing. But uh, I guess it was probably, I don't know, 15 years ago when permaculture was in that upswing, when I first met you Mm -hmm. uh, and the other permaculture people here in Vermont, that I became very interested again because in Pennsylvania, I had a real nice little orchard, fruit orchard, and plantings of 
you know, grafted apple trees and espaliers. And I just loved, always loved full of plants. I always did it for fun. I wasn't convinced I wanted to do it for work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I got this, came up here and started meeting all the people that were moving in that movement of permaculture that was happening then, I got very interested again. And of course, started growing fruits and nuts and some berries and then started looking at the nuts, which I never really understood um, just how much work had been done with nut trees by human beings, you know, starting with, of course, the indigenous people that formed a foundation from all the plants we've collected that are native to this country and elsewhere for that matter. But even the white people that have been doing it for however long, um, when, you know, when that happened, then I started fooling with nut trees and I was having a good time playing around with crafting, growing fruit trees, building, building up my orchards and making a few plants and growing stuff from seed. And when I stumbled on nut trees, man, they got, they took a hold of me and bit me and infected me in some way. I'm like helpless to, uh, to not fool with them. And, uh, I just really, really want to spend the rest of my life really just playing around with the nut trees, collecting them, um, gathering up a really big collection and breeding them as well. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them are, the chestnuts are pretty easy. You can, in one lifetime, you can make good inroads into breeding progress with chestnuts and some other stuff, hazelnuts too. Mm-hmm. But the tree nuts really have, as you know, they really have me, uh, you know, they really have me in their sway. So I'm a, I'm a servant to them in so many ways. And that's all from the permaculture dudes. And of course, you know, I read all the, all the permaculture books that were, have come out or have been out and then started going back in time from there, you know, and we go back to Russell Smith mm-hmm. and the work of the people in the teens and twenties. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they were just really, in my opinion, compiling and collecting all the, from the, the last vestiges of the, the, in the, what the Indians the native people had left here in their gardens and in their, in their, in their permaculture plantings in their forest gardens. And so we still, I'm lucky enough, I still get to see some of those vestiges today in my gathering and, and cruising around. But that's kind of how I got on that. And, um, you know, I spent maybe five years looking for a place to farm because my homestead here in Vermont, while it was lovely, it was really rugged. Uh, you know, I, I call it the Flatlander's dream. Way up high, hard to get to, no power, <laughs> no soil. All the topsoil was long gone on that site, washed down the hill. So, you know, and it was very, very steep and full of glacial erratics and just glacial till, which anybody understands glacial till is basically it's, uh, you know, clay with some uh, gravel mixed in. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to grow plants. Some stuff does okay, but you, I brought a lot of uh, soil improvements back to that place. Right. Trucking it back uphill. Trucking it back up the hill from, yep. from the intervale and else anywhere, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, had a great time there and the people have it now really love it. And they've of course bought a whole lot more forested land. And so really made a much more of a preserve, a kind of an Island of, of uh, land that will be well taken care of for a long time on that hillside. It won't, it won't be um, messed with, which is nice because it's right on the, on a beautiful river. Um, the minister broke. So it's nice to know that, that forest will be, you know, maintained by people that have a, a very good sense of, of how that should look for the next generations to come hopefully mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i want to talk about a number of things i want to hear more about perfect circle farm and 
where you see the future of nut trees and agroforesters and these different topics. But I also want to go back to, uh, before we get into some of those, the, um, I'd love if you would talk a little about the, the Hershey plantings and some of other plantings that you'd like to talk about, but start us off maybe with, with those. And what do you, what are, what's some of the significance of those? What was he trying to do there? Um, yeah. And then maybe, you know, as, as you'd like to, I'd love to hear some of your, what I'm calling like sort of your favorite stories, discovering, collecting these valuable genetics that you're sourcing. Yeah. That sounds fun. I'm going to take a quick break because I'm over. Yeah, please. Yeah, let's do <laughs> I'll be right it. Back. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Um. <laughs> All right. No, that's so great. The uh, kind of to set the stage for this is like when I started, you know, when I when I started to dive into the idea of um, tree crops. Um, I started, of course, you know. Well, the point I'm trying to say is. Thank heavens for the internet, mm-hmm. because the internet, you know, while while getting me started was people, the internet was really what propelled me, you know, forward in a way that would not have happened without the internet. Because there's so much information that's available online about the history of what's happened with tree crops in this country and elsewhere, um, and it, it also connects us up. We, we get connected up to so many people who are have done the work, are doing the work, or want to do the work. So the amount of information that can be shared and gleaned from study studying those who have gone before us um, can quick, pretty quickly be put together on the internet for continued study. Now, having said that about how important the internet is, the most important work that has taken place with what I've learned and what I'm doing is not on the internet. It's personal interaction. It's personal interactions with people who are offline, mm-hmm. right? Or are dead and have left behind a legacy. Mm-hmm. And I call all these people the, uh, uh, you know, the shoulders, the giants whose shoulders I stand upon, because that's mm-hmm. how I feel about it. So when I started out um, studying I mean, the tree crops and permaculture, um, I came to understand that the teens and nineteen teens and nineteen twenties, there was a big movement in this country, the United States, to change the farmer's perspective away from row cropping to plant perennial plants, so they could quit tilling the soil, and therefore end all the erosion. And that they were foreseeing climate change then, in the twenties and thirties. And they kind of foreshadowed that in many, several writings I've seen, they talk about this, you know, what's going to happen. Um, And the soil loss in this country was phenomenal at that time. The Dust Bowl was another great example of like, oh, huge drought, crops all all gone, people displaced, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people displaced and traveling to California to try to find a way to live. So, um, you know, we see all, seeing all that historical stuff that was happening then, there was a tree crops movement. And it was quite strong uh, from the 20s into the 30s into the to, until World War II. And then you see at World War II, when you study the writings and the work, you see at World War II, there's a huge change. Um, the government uh, 
the universities and academic institutions um, all turn their face back to row cropping and call it the green revolution and invent all the chemicals that we're using today, still the vast majority of them, um, to aid in farming, um, which a lot of there, you know, there's definitely pest management in tree crops, but it's not, it's not intensively trying to grow, you know, two or 3 million, uh, or maybe it's 200, 200 million acres of corn. You know, that's a, that requires an awful lot of inputs to do that. And so um, it, it's a shame that the work that was done in the early part of the uh, 19th, 20th century, 19th century, yeah, 20th century, um, wasn't continued with the same um, verve that it had in the first half. Because mm -hmm. we'd be a lot further along now with production and processing of the the you know the, the tree crops, especially the nut crops, because um, we're still in the infancy of nut crop, uh, you know, both production and processing, and both those things you know have to have to have to be understood and brought way up and and made to to scale and appropriate scale, especially you know the amount of processing that goes into corn. You know how much many things corn is turned into, right? So many products that make no no sense. There's a good. Uh... <laughs> There's a good through line episode that they just did recently that's like a, a nice, well-produced podcast called 400 Years of Sweetness, where they really broke it down solidly with this one Arthur who shows that it was really the, it was a whole bunch of financial packaging that happened that enabled the whole production sector to move from sugar, developed from sugarcane, which of course has its whole legacy of slavery and plantation labor being behind sugar sure. that being that being said even more insanely energy intensive to be made is high fructose corn syrup yep. and there was no market for it because the price was so high so then eventually it became subsidized to such a high degree that fructose corn syrup was able to make it on the marketplace but for quite some time it was totally financially unviable because it's so ridiculously energy and cost intensive to make. Yeah. Well, and let alone, you know, making nitrogen from, from natural gas for fertilizer. I mean, right. all the inputs for corn production, including the chemicals that are needed, weed killers. Now we got glyphosate and Roundup Ready corn and the, the whole technology of the green revolution. It, it's frighteningly you know, disconnected from any any system that vaguely, slightest bit resembles ecology or the way the earth functions, right? It's strictly, it's like a technical molecule. It's like one big giant technical molecule, you know? And um, turning that around, I mean, you know, I'm still believe at some point it's going to, a light bulb will go off in the number, in, in the in a number of people that they have, it has to his brain that will say, oh, my God, we need to quit tilling 200 million acres for corn and plant it all out and, and sequester all the carbon and quit using all the chemicals that are going down and, you know, build that soil back up. Because the soil is still beautiful there. It's yeah. just degrade, been degraded now for 100 years or whatever that is. But it's not gone. It's just radically changed. You, know, you go to Iowa. And you, have you ever been to Iowa and driven around? Just driven through. Not really. Yeah. time. It's it's crazy, you know, um, yeah. to see that, you know, you drive, it's just corn and soy. Yeah. 
far as the eye can see, and you'll drop down to a little river valley, tiny little river, little water, you know, there's a little tiny bit of forested thing, narrow till it goes up to that benchmark, and then boom, we're back to corn and soy. And in the corn fields, excuse me, in the soybean fields, pretty much the only weeds of consequence, or the only weeds you're really aware of, is the Roundup Ready corn that got left the year before, <laughs> and uh -huh. the Roundup can't kill it. So the corn's right. eight feet tall in little strips growing in the soybeans, you know, because there's nothing they could do. Right. Yeah. You know, because they're not right. tilling. They're just spraying with Roundup and that's that. So it was funny seeing the corn like, yeah, waving back at me. We're still here. There's still some corn here in the soybean fields. Anyway, you know, I, I can envision, close my mind, think about that. I can envision those, you know, all those, you know, Iowa plains uh, filled back up with, you know, hickories and chestnuts and other trees. Right. Making which crops, been, walnuts. Which would have been the wild ecology to some extent. Well, yeah. Well, that's the whole thing, you know, with, with row crops that are the way they're grown now, there's very little variability from farmer to farmer about how it's going to be done because you have to have a product that looks like X and you got to do this or it's not going to be that way. Well, you talk to people that are growing trees and there are some people that are much happier with a much wilder cropping style. Mm -hmm. And some, some are, you know, more meticulously clean. It's got to be clean, you know, real clean and clear. And they're, you know, they're spraying and they're keeping stuff low and they're killing grass. But there's a lot of people that understand that, you know, ecology is really uh, the method at play. And the more we can emulate that, you know, the better luck we're going to have with everything we're trying to do because uh, diverse ecology supports, um, you know, uh, controls on the pests naturally. It just really does. You know, I go to these chestnuts, some of these chestnuts orchards, and they say, what do you think? I'm like, you know, where's the, where's the, where's the wildflowers? Where's the, where's the insect habitat? What do you think? You just going to magically stay just chestnut trees for a hundred years and no problems. You got to have some diversity, some other trees, some other plants. Where's the goldenrod? You know, there's a place for it. You just have to think about that. It's like right. ecology is an important part of planetary survival. If it wasn't, we wouldn't have it all around us everywhere. Those who see ecology see it everywhere. And, but people don't understand that. They haven't ever been shown that or they don't know that. They never learned that. Right. Or they're too busy with whatever they're doing to understand that. And so you know, they're relying on people to lead us who have no concept of this. Mm -hmm. And so this is where we are. Right. You know, in, a, in a place where you know, we're dealing with uh, you know, PFAS in the water and the soil. Microplastics is just emerging as the big, the next new nightmare, mm -hmm. right? You know, here in Vermont, they've been put. There are farms that have been taking, um, you know, you know biosolids—the name that got coined for human shit—and um, applying it to the farm for years, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, and then that farm, if you stop doing it for three years, that farm can be certified organic. Three years here, five years if you're spraying three years of its biosolids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, th th thankfully the farm I have was blessedly had no inputs from the time the farmer died in 69. That's just dumb luck on my part. Because if I had heard it was biosolids, I probably wouldn't have been that upset. Oh yeah, biosolids, you know, not, not that big a deal. So anyway, so biosolids are full of PFAS, right? That's what right. I mean. And, and microplastics too, probably. Yeah. But we're just starting, they just tested the composts in Vermont. It's a voluntary thing. I put two of my different types in. Um, for microplastics mm -hmm. and those results are just out you know and they're highly variable man all mm -hmm. over the place yeah from not so bad to like pretty bad 
Yeah. And that, that just means like every time we're taking that compost and spreading it anywhere, we're spreading microplastics. And they haven't been tested for PFASs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the problems of modern agriculture and hu- modern human life are really are huge and real. And they're not going to go away. Right. You know, PFAS and stuff's just like, uh, you know, it's going to last a long, long time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my thinking on that is often we need to vigilantly enforce what environmental laws we have, which we're not doing a good job of. And we need to plant out and create the new economy of the future today. Right. And that's part of what these the trees it's an elegantly simple and effective way to address a whole manifold set of issues that potentially aren't as effectively addressed by any one thing as uh, reforestation can when it's done thoughtfully, when it's done appropriately. Yeah. And I think, you know, these are questions I've had as well when I'm looking at much of the enthusiasm I'd say there is, which is a good thing. I would, I would think for um, agroforestry, for tree crops, that there is this new wave of enthusiasm around it. Would you, would you characterize that? I mean, do you think to pick up, let's pick up the thread on our history here. Would you say it's accurate to that, you know, post World War II and this whole uh, aggressive rollout of the green revolution and putting annuals in the foreground and the tree crops movement in effect fading do we have pretty much a gap that brings us all the way up to what time period would you say do we start to see an interest resurge in uh, the tree crop propagation work? Is it is it not until the the nineties and two thousands? Um, yeah, um, I wouldn't say that. There have been hardcore there have been hardcore people. You know, it's the funniest thing, but, you know, I said earlier that the trees get a hold of you and, you know, you become almost like you, it's almost like you're compelled. And Mm -hmm. so in my, in in my short time at it, which is, you know, under 20 years of trying to do it more like 15 um, at scale anyway, or, or, you know, with, um, with real intention, you know, I'm fortunate enough to meet all the people that are still alive who've been doing it their whole life, who are in their, you know, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And, you know, they're dying already, the ones that I've known, you know. And so those very few people have basically been maintaining uh, this collection that was put together uh, in the teens, 20s, 30s, uh, and doing a little bit of, of breeding, you know, of improving, which... Um, like small, so like family curated uh, nursery uh, sort of like what do they call that a refugia yeah well for instance like there's still some usda work that's been going on right so the usda repositories and some of the universities have been keeping collections going like in cornell there's the arboretum there and the mcdaniels nut grove um in university of missouri there's they're doing black walnut breeding and chestnut um they have a chestnut orchard there um I think it's there's the pecan or there's the pecan repository and you know the work of this guy Grocky, all his hickory work, and he's still alive. Um, Bill Reed with pecans, he's still alive. Um, but then privately, and you know their focus is more of a commercial. How how do we make these crops commercial? Which trees produce the most, and you know when do they produce, and 
um, you know, the, they're, they're trialing a lot, trial, trialing a lot of plants. And then on a smaller scale, you have people like Parker Coble, mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania, who just passed two years ago. Parker was 80, 83, I think. He was a second generation orchardist. His father did, uh, I believe it was cherries and then started growing nuts later in his life. And Parker took that on. And so Parker had a tremendous collection. And so people like him and, you know, that he was a member of the Pennsylvania Nut Growers Association. So that wasn't just him. There were a bunch of other people that were all sharing that, that, uh, that germplasm in their work. Um, Parker's the one who was the, he's the most out, he was the most outgoing and friendliest. And for me anyway, he's somebody I just really loved. And so he shared an awful lot of information with me. Um, in Chestnuts, you have, you know, Greg Miller, Bob Staley, both in Ohio, um, Dr. Sandy, Dr. Sandra Anagnostakis in, um, in Connecticut, who, who took over the work of the chestnut breeding that was going on there since, well, that's also since 1929. I think they started planting the first hybrids there and they started breeding them before that. So there's there's been people involved in keeping this movement alive, but it's not like it is right now where so many people are so excited about agroforestry, silvopasture, permaculture, um, you know, um, productive buffers, yep. you know, and just tree farming in general, not crop. And then of course, you know, there's and this movement that we have right now with so many people involved in permaculture and the other the other associated practices is the reason I can have a nursery. Because mm-hmm. so many people want to get these plants going in their in their homestead, in their backyard, or on their farm, mm-hmm. and so it's it's good that it's kept on going, and it's it's better that it's got a, a big movement afoot. Right. So our ability to respond to climate change with a changing and change in croppings will be like to go to perennial crop. It'll be entirely, uh, you know, it'll be predicated on the, us having the germplasm to create the plants we need to plant out. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have those, that's years in the making. So without these collections that can be then, you know, harvested from and, you know, made grafts made of those clones made of those plants, um, we're going to be in trouble. So that's kind of one of the, re- that's one of the feelings I get from the trees is that I need to make a collection here that will be for the future. So a pattern, it sounds like, of the vestigial plantings that have remained is that they were largely institutions that were university-based or some other substantial funded organization that was able to have a fairly sizable planting stay undeveloped, protected in, in horticultural research. But, yep. in, but So we could say that fast forward another hundred years, if we well, let's just back. Let's let's not do. Let's not fast forward yet, because what I have to talk about now is how oh, great. Those, how do these institutions all get these plants? Yeah, right. Please. How do we have the plants to get? And that those are the people that need to be celebrated right now, and that's the people in the teens and the twenties, the white people in the teens and twenties who you know had enough sense to realize that maybe we should be taking a better look, a closer look at what was left of the you know indigenous collections that were that abounded along all the rivers in this country and old, old village sites and went about systematically collecting them. And that's John Hershey in a nutshell. And John Hershey's like my superhero, you know, and I'll talk, I talk about him all the time. Great. Know, please. Yeah. Share some. Yeah. So John, John Hershey was a, uh, he was a Mennonite. He was born um, probably 
you know, turn of the century, early 1900s. I don't know the exact date he was born. I got to find that out. Um, and in Lancaster County, actually in the village, I think in the village of Ronks, um, which is to the uh, east of Lancaster um, or Paradise, somewhere in there. That's a Mennonite. And um, he was fortunate enough to have also in Lancaster County, this guy named J.F. Jones, who was had a tree crops nursery one of the first ones in the North and JF Jones was solicited and enlisted to come North from Louisiana and Florida, where he was helping the pecan growers get the pecan orchard started in that, in there, in that, in that area. So he was, uh, you know, brought North by um, uh, the likes of uh, J Russell Smith and um, I'm not going to, I have a hard time with names without them in front of me, but several of the, Several of the, um, you know, people from this region that were concerned with this and that had plenty of money and all their friends, a lot of the industrialists at the turn of the century were into planting tree crops, which is kind of fun. They had plenty of money. It was a great hobby for them, something for them to be engaged in. Um, R.T. Morris was a famous surgeon. Um, he was very instrumental in getting all this stuff going. Um, and so they convinced J.F. Jones to come to Pennsylvania and start a nursery. And Hershey was nearby, so Hershey started working for J.F. Jones. And J.F. Jones taught him how to graft and got him interested in these trees. And Hershey just took it from there. But J.F. Jones died when Hershey was in his mid-20s, probably. And Hershey was just very, very interested and curious with these plants. And they say that he would hear about a tree you know, 500 miles away to get in his car and drive there straight, you know, just go because he wanted to get there and, and see the tree and collect wood and collect seed and take it back home and grow it out. And uh, there's stories of him doing this over and over, actually. You know, someone sends him a nut they found on the side of the dam on some little brook coming down out of some mountain. He goes there, goes upstream, goes to the farm and the tree's been cut down. <laughs> you know, the week before he got there, that kind of stuff, you know. So yeah. he was he was really interested in making sure he got these plants. And so he was also really good friends with Russell Smith. And Russell Smith, of course, wrote uh, in 1927, he wrote Tree Crops, A Permanent Agriculture. And then, you know, republished that book in 1953 in a much larger size, and a lot more information. But even in the 27 version, you know, Hershey gets a mention or some mentions. Because he, you know, he was farming in Downingtown, Chester County, Pennsylvania, which is where we're both from. And, you know, I grew up there really my whole life, moved out of there in my 40s and never knew, of course, that Hershey's Farms were there because they they were lost. Right. They were lost to time. You know, the, uh, the when I read Tree Crops and saw the mention, there's a map in there. It's like RR2, rural route to the address. There's no road names. RR2, Downingtown, PA. I'm like, oh my God, where in the world is this? I started looking and I started looking. And eventually I got to decide it. But I'll get there in a minute. But so Hershey, you know, started a tree crops nursery in, in the uh, early 20s uh, in Downingtown. Right, right downtown, Downingtown, across, across from the Quaker meeting. He had nine acres and started growing plants there. And he was very enthusiastic and very involved in the Northern Nut Growers Association and was fortunate to have a lot of the rich industrialists and lawyers and so forth 
who were interested in tree crops that he could sell plants to. And so they were taking them for their farms and planting them on their estates in Long Island and here and there and everywhere. And he became pretty well known in that circle, uh, the emerging circle of, of tree crops. And uh, to the point where in when FDR was elected after the, you know, the Great Depression, um, he actually asked J. Russell Smith to be the Secretary of Agriculture. I don't know if you ever heard this. Yeah, FDR wanted Russell Smith to be the Department of Ag, head of the Department of Ag, and Russell Smith declined. Um, part of the reason that FDR wanted um, Russell Smith because he wanted to create this a tree crops nursery, federal, uh, run by the federal government. And it became one of the New Deal programs, and it was called the uh, TVA Nursery. It was put in at the Tennessee Valley Association Authority, where they were, they were damming various rivers in the Tennessee Valley for electricity. And so Russell Smith got Hershey to be appointed as the head of that TVA nursery. And so Hershey was down there for the TVA for a number of years, um, five, four, five, six years got it set up, got it organized, got it running. And for a couple of reasons, ended up leaving um, in the early, late 30s, probably early 40s. He actually probably left there full time. But during that time, what he did was, you know, Russell Smith had figured out that if he published um, a contest for the best of a certain plant, like the first one they did was the honey locust, to search for the best honey locust, so they published a contest. You know, for the best honey locust, you'll get $500 or whatever it was, send in a sample with your name and address. And so they get hundreds and hundreds of thousands of samples of honey locusts in, All right. pick through the best ones, right? Those people win and they go there and propagate that plant. And Hershey continued that, that work at the TVA, best, best contests for the best oak, the best hickory, the best persimmon, the best pawpaw, the best black walnuts. And in that way, in a very short period of time, he was able to amass a heck of a germplasm collection because he had people that were working for him who were plant breeders and plant grafters and seed propagators. And you know, they had a lot of money, especially for him. And so he built it up pretty quick. And some of the, if you go back and look, historical record of the plants they were growing and how big it was and how many seedlings, I mean, I think they gave out like, somewhere between two, two, and two to 400,000 seedlings to the farmers in the Tennessee region to plant on their farms, you know, to help them feed their animals. And that's the other interesting thing about Hershey and Smith is it wasn't just to feed people, you know, because at the time, we, you know, we're feeding uh, grain uh, and hay to, to animals and trying to live on the side, you know, cows, pigs, chickens, et cetera, on the side of a mountain in Tennessee somewhere. So it's a bad combination of, uh, you know, trying to do row crops, corn on the steep hillside farm in yeah. Tennessee or Vermont for that matter. Right. And so the idea of like what, what crops could we grow that would feed our, our livestock for three or four months without any grass or hay in, if there was a drought or, you know, when, when the fields were after they were cut for winter hay, whatever that might be. So Hershey was really focused as well because he was a farmer. He was focused on how do we feed these animals. And so for him, when he'd see a plant, it was, I think, usually like, oh, my goodness, you know, a thousand bushels, you know, off this one tree or whatever the heck it was of acorns. He talks, he loved acorns, you know, he called it the corn of the mountains. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so he collected all these all these plants at the TVA, and then he brought them back to Downingtown. And when he came back to the TVA is when he bought his second larger farm, which is the one, the map in the uh, in the tree crops book, in Russell Smith's book. That map is of Hershey's uh, second farm in Guthriesville, Pennsylvania, four miles north of Downingtown. And that lays out what he had going there at the time, which would have been 1953. Um, so you go there today and you've been there. And yep. so when Hershey died in 69, I think, um, he was hopeful right up until his death that the local conservation organization there would buy his farm and conserve it. And they talked about doing it. In the end, they did not. And that would have been the BVA, which you probably know them, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Brandywine Valley Association. I'm pretty sure that's who it was. I have not confirmed that, but that's makes who it was. Huh? I said that makes sense. It's like Yeah, it does make sense. I don't yep. know who else was doing that con- kind of conservation work in, mm-hmm. in that area besides them then. And then he's in the right watershed and the right region for that. But yep. they did not. And so his farm was sold to developers. And in 1980, they did to what we see today, which is, I think it's 400 condo and maybe, you know, 50 or so single family. And in the process, cut down at least half of his trees, including all his orchards, because those trees were on, you know, anywhere from 50 to 75 foot centers. So it's easy to get that back and mowed. He was grazing underneath them the whole time. So it was easy to get those fields back into buildable condition for condos as opposed to his uh, nursery rows, which would have been by then, you know, a dog hair thicket just because you see what it's like today. You know, mm-hmm. so that would have been, he got that farm in 45. So that's, okay. is that about 80 years yeah. to today? Right. Something like that. Yeah. And see, so, you, know, you have trees in there in his nursery rows, which are about a mile long. You know, they're, two to three foot diameter, hundred foot tall walnuts and hickories and oaks. There's some chestnuts and other stuff mixed in there too. Honey locusts, there's some beech, um, tons of persimmon, few pawpaws left, uh, grafted plants mixed in with seedling plants. So that was all left. And, you know, since I've been going there since 2015, um, we've been, I've been trying to like figure out which ones are, which of these are the best ones. You know, obviously the grafted ones are ones that he thought were really good because he cloned them. But then there's lots of seedlings in there, which are just as good as the grafts. Because they're, so, are they largely true to seed or they do something genetically that's still related to the parent stock? Um, can we come back to that? Yeah. Can you make a note? Because I want to talk about that, but not now. Because we're yeah. going to move ahead to like, you know, Hershey and, and uh, from Hershey to like, you know, um, your question, which was, you know, well, I forget the question, but this was a segue into that next question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, I'd love to hear also, as you want to, to share some of what, you know, you've been working on with developing adaptable strains, too. And right. Maybe okay, any so, of that lineage that threads from Hershey varieties. So that, just to finish up on the, like, the idea of John Hershey and this collection that he, that he put together basically from 1925, say, until his death in 69. There's literally, you know, hundreds and hundreds of cultivars that are there. Uh, there's no tags. So we're doing our best to piece that back together. And the historical collections, there are quite a few folks that were alive then that put together collections um, 
that are largely untagged or unmarked. So they're great plants. Um, and they're, a lot of them are clones. So we know, they're, <laughs> we know there are certain ones, like Hershey obviously had all the honey locusts, but which one's which? That's hard to tell from pods, at least for us. He probably knew. I'm sure he knew, actually, but he could probably tell them apart. And so he was not alone. There were maybe, I don't know, probably, I don't even know how many, but there were lots of people like Hershey who put together, spent their life making these collections and left them behind. And the majority of them are not protected, as you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I go back to Hershey's, just in this, you know, since 2015, um, every time I go, there are more trees cut down. Yeah. More trees yeah. removed. Trees that are, 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 have never been properly evaluated and will never be replaced. And um, I'm sure Hershey was aware of that when he was going into the woods and collecting at the sites of these, um, you know, the Native Americans, food forests. He was, I'm sure he was aware that these plants were being systematically destroyed and he was doing his best to put them together for exactly what I'm talking about is changing agriculture away from um, annual agriculture to a a perennial based agriculture. Mm -hmm. And so once I understood that about him, I'm like, wow, okay, that is really, that, this is, this is exactly what I want to do, but I want to do it for zone four because that's where I'm living. And he was in zone six, you know? And um, so I got to take another break, man. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Let's take a short break. No, thank you. Pop us off. So just to underscore for our listeners here, what, you're referring to there about being well aware of that is part of the point of these series is the permaculture living land trust is created to address some of what it is that that buzz has just been outlining which is this concern that we see a pattern that's been going on of the need to conserve these types of plantings yet who is really rallying for that and advocating for that and that is a major focus of the Permaculture Living Lands Trust and Lisa DePiano and David Harper and I, that's what we're putting together a team to mobilize around this need. It's yeah, it's need. super important because what the what these people did in the, in the early part of the 1900s was to collect the best germplasm from the tens of thousands of years probably of assimilation that the native people had done and um uh that that germplasm is now mostly 100 years later is mostly gone it's been cut down for progress most so everywhere there's little vestiges of it here still in their mountainous regions but that's not where these collections were put together by the native people they're put together in the deep rich soils of the larger river valleys which have all been turned into they've all been you know Right. Urban, suburbanized, peopleized, and so right. these trees are are going, going, gone, and are mostly gone. So what's left in the collections of the, you know, the the people from the early 1900s is probably the 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 biggest last vestige of that work. And so for me, it's super. And you, we understand how important it is, but it doesn't really have a lot of resonance to the people that have the money, right? Because it's not Mm -hmm. producing money. Mm -hmm. It's not, has no historical significance in the, in the story of, uh, of this country, right? Western progress. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's been, it's an outlier. So how to change that? 
you know, you're all, I think the only way is if, if the people that have the resources and feel some kind of some kind of conscious consciousness about what can I do to help the future maintain the brightness of the future. I mean, this is a huge, huge opportunity for people that are looking to have that be part of their legacy mm-hmm. is preserve these crops. I think. Yeah. 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 Would you say there are a couple other sites that come to mind that are as significant, not that we need to give addresses and locations, but just ones, yeah. that, you know, to mention that are in, in any way similar or, you know, along the lines of Hershey's. Oh yeah. Um, so you have, you have John Hershey's and, you know, I'm going to just, as an aside to you, you know, Zach Alpers has a much better list than I do. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. We'll be back on. Yeah. Here. So he's got a longer and deeper list because okay. we'll Pennsylvania that. was a very rich area for this work. So he knows everyone, but you know, you have Parker Coble who's also right. in Pennsylvania. Um, John Gordon and John Gordon's almost our contemporary. His site is in uh, outside of Buffalo and Amherst. You have um, Bob Sipes outside of Allentown, Pennsylvania. Bob's 94. Um, quite a collection. Uh, you had Jerry Layman's uh, Persimmon Pawpaw yeah. in um, Indiana. Um, Claypool, you know Claypool's Orchard, also Persimmon in uh, Indiana or Illinois, Indiana, I think. Um, uh, Little Page has an amazing pecan planting in outside of uh, Bowie, Maryland. Um, where else? Uh, so, Ted Denecki, Ted Denecki in New Jersey. Um, and as you know about that. And Ted's doing um, a little bit hickory. Other, is he doing other, working with other? Yeah, Ted has, um, he has a little bit of work with walnut, English walnut especially, mm-hmm. uh, mulberry, uh, persimmon. But his love is hickory. His first love is hickory. They have him hard and fast. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I told you, I should mention, there's a planting at the New Jersey Botanical Garden. Of what do they have there? They have hickory. Oh, hickories. All probably came from Hershey. Um or it's all hundred-year-old stuff, man. It's gorgeous. It's all grafted. So that's uh, and that's going to be there because it's a botanic garden. So that's it's. They don't even mow it. They don't even mow wow. it. It's like it's the back forty going into the woods. It's the overgrown jungle. You uh-huh. know, they don't, they don't even mow it once a year or ever. It's just like you can't even get the trees. It's a multi-floor thicket, dude. And the, so and yeah, grafted. they'll be there. They'll they're be grafted. there. They're cultivars. They're all grafted. Every tree in there. Yeah. Yeah, and they don't know what they have or no. I have never talked to the management there or anybody down there. I'm just in there, gotten my sign wood, checking stuff out. Um, who else? Fred Blankenship, uh, Lucky Pittman. He's in Kentucky, I think, or Tennessee. Lucky's in Kentucky, I think. Oh, Cliff England in Kentucky. Uh, he has the, his collection is covers everything. Um, you know, another. A, a broad, broad array of, of plants, he's species. He's got everything, Andrew. I'm yeah. talking about everything, you know. Oh, Connecticut Ag Experimental Station. Uh, the plantings, and it's in Hamden. The plantings at Lockwood Farm, you know, that land's owned by the, the Connecticut Ag Experimental Station, which I believe is owned by the state of Connecticut. So the Sleeping Giant Park plantings, they're preserved forever, but that Connecticut land, I don't know what's going to happen there. They're letting most of the... A lot of the people that age out are being not being replaced there. 
mm. in that experimental station. So that land is worth, that's I guess a hundred acres or something surrounded by quarter acre lots. Um, that's a valuable piece of real estate where it sits. And there are, there are a lot, there are probably some more I can come up with. And that's um, University of Connecticut when you say. No, Ag that's the Connecticut Ag Experimental Station. Oh, oh, by the state, state. Of, state of Connecticut. Got it. Yeah. Got it. So, Buzz, tell me a little about the northern hardiness work you're doing with persimmon. Yeah. So, um, if a lot of people have never had an American persimmon. And if they have, they've got them when they weren't ripe, you know, because they're astringent as could be. So they make your mouth pucker yeah. hard. But if you start, if you ever get yourself into someone's orchard where the uh, they have a good selection of Americans and they're they're ripe, and you know they're ripe when they drop, they're almost impossible to pick off a tree. You have to wait till they drop, and then you know they're ripe, and, when, and they're not astringent um, when they drop the good cultivars. Um, it is just fantastic. It's just such an amazing, delicious, sweet, lovely. People like describe the flavor. I'm like, it's impossible. You know, it's like nothing you've ever had. If you've ever had a Asian persimmon from anywhere, they're pretty good. You know, some of them are almost as good as the Americans, but I don't think they really come close to the, the really good Americans or the American hybrids. Some of them are just unbelievable as well. Mm -hmm. And so it's my favorite fruit in the world. And um, of course I've heard from everyone, you know, can't be grown in zone four. So, well, let's say for real. So I've been planting them for uh, six years hard. And I've, I've planted over 35,000 and I'm going to plant another seven or eight this year. And then call the call the hardiness part of the trials closed, I think. So, you know, somewhere around 40,000, 42,000 plants I will have planted, grown from seed, evaluated for three years for hardiness, and then grown on. And, you know, we'll see after that, right? And so right now in rough numbers, I'm getting um, one in 100 seedlings that makes the cut. Yeah. That they're good enough for me to save them aside and line them out in the field and grow them on to see how they do, you know, outside because they'd be grown in a seed bed, packed in with all their brothers and sisters and half cousins and all that stuff for three years during the evaluation process. And it's pretty gruesome to see them dying. <laughs> you know, it's it's a winter frost. The late fall frost is the hardest part of the process for them because they still think it's you know. They still think they're in Pennsylvania or Virginia and we'll go from 40 degrees, you know, uh, one day to uh, 17 F and they're still green. They haven't hardened off. <laughs> they just all turn black down about so far halfway, usually or in, oh. at least the at least yeah. half of the current year's growth and sometimes hundred percent. So that's what wax them the hardest. They can withstand 20 below here. The plants all live they'll burn down hard to the ground, some of them, or at least to the snow level. And majority of them will burn down at least halfway. Uh, but there are certain ones. There's those one in a hundred that just barely burn. And then there's, you know, some of those hundred uh, don't burn at all. There's no winter kill from them at all, frost kill at all. And so I'm hopeful some of those plants will make 
uh, really good cultivars, name, name plants that have fantastic fruit set. Uh, of course, the other problem with zone four is length of season, where we've got less heat and shorter seasons. So they also have to be early, you know, because there's early, middle, and late season on all these plants. They, all these things, all these plants crop. There are certain members of that species that are early season, mid season, and late season. So I've been selecting mid, uh, you know, never late season, but early and mid season plants and always from great orchards. Now you asked the question a while ago is like, are the nuts better if they're from trees that are approved? And the answer is yes. Now, will they always be at it, be better? The answer is no, they might be better. And the chances of them being better are way higher. So if you have a great tree that's in a great orchard so that the male the male parent will also be another great tree. And this is something people don't necessarily understand is that most of these trees do not pollinize themselves. They need another individual to supply the, the male part uh, in the form of pollen to make a seed. So if you have, you know, random forest tree pollinized by who knows what other random forest trees, chances of those nuts being great are really slim. If you were collecting from uh, the deep, rich um, banks of the tributaries of the Mississippi River, where people have been living for tens of thousands of years, nut trees, you're going to find a lot better ones because they bring those back and plant them. Because mm -hmm. that's what they were eating all winter was nuts, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and nowadays, if you collect from an orchard where they're rowed out, they're in a line, and it's this great tree and that great tree and this great tree, that means the female parent and the male parent all come from great genetics. The chance of getting a better tree is is way way higher. We see this at Hershey's, mm -hmm. thousands and thousands of seedling trees, and so many of them are as good, and many of them are better than the parent trees he was growing. So we see that in his in his crops. You know, eighty years later, right? That, that does take place. Same thing with persimmons. All the seed I get, they're not just they're not from any random plant. Right. You know, I'm particular. I'm I'm kind of. OCD in a certain way. And like, I really don't even like to plant seed that I don't know what mother tree they came from. Mm -hmm. Like, unless I see it or someone I trust tells me it's a good one, I'm not going to plant it. I don't collect from the woods. I don't buy from state nurseries. I don't buy seed from, from the random seed sellers online. I'm getting seed from people I know, from orchards I know, so that I can make sure that I get these, the good seed. And that's even just for growing rootstocks, because if the rootstock fails and the clone dies, I want that tree to have a good chance of being a, a superior plant, even still. And that's John Hershey in a nutshell. That's what he was doing, too. He was only grafting on top of great trees, rootstocks. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so the ones I've collected from are all pretty much persimmons now. They're all pretty much from Zone 6. There are a few, very few growers in Zone 5 which I've been getting seed from as well. I don't see any, they haven't been grown in zone five long enough to see a difference between zone five and zone six plants. And now the other thing with persimmons, so I get one in a hundred, let's say, you know, I get a hundred, I line a hundred out. The conventional thinking is half or so will be male. So only half of them, because they come in male and female trees, generally speaking. So if I get one in a hundred, you know, that means it's, uh, you know, one in 200 might be female if I'm lucky. And then we'll have to see five years after when they fruit, uh, will they be early enough to set fruit in zone four? And that doesn't mean it won't, won't be great trees that are worthy of propagated in zone six. 
Mm -hmm. but they may just be too late for me with our short season and, you know, not that warm summer uh, to make fruit that is going to get fully ripe here and be delicious. Mm -hmm. So that's probably a, um, you know, the hardiness trials is a probably a seven or eight, nine year program. And then the, the grow up from there is another five, five years. That's a, you know, up to 15 year, 15 year program before I could say, oh yeah, look at this. Now, the one example I have is another great breeder named Elwin Meter. You ever heard of Meter? Mm-hmm. Elwin Meter was a plant breeder, mostly garden plants. He was mostly a collector breeder of uh of uh, vegetables, but he also dabbled in um, fruits. Mm. And so he grew 400 seedlings or two, two, between two and 400 seedlings of one cultivar called Garretson. He was in zone five and he was searching for better hardiness and persimmon with this plant he grew, plants he was growing. And he selected one and he called it New Hampshire one persimmon. And now it's called meter. And it's interesting for me, meter seedlings are no hardier than any of the ones I'm trialing. Mm. So meter might be a little hardier itself, but its offspring, you know, are, are yeah. don't seem to be. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no, there seems to be very little rhyme or reason of which the plants I'm growing are hardy. It's one in a hundred completely random, except for one plant that's growing at John Hershey, which is a, it's not a great tasting persimmon. <laughs> it's a good yielder. It's kind of, you know, it's a, it can be almost blue black the fruit when it's fully ripe in the sun, um, and it is significantly hardier. And it's called, I believe it's called Berman. I'm pretty sure that's what it was called a cultivar. It's significantly hardier than anything else I'm growing. Mm-hmm. Preliminary results on my hardiness trials, but it sure has been fun, and it will continue to be fun because I have another, you know, three years of grow, four years of growing out seedlings and selecting. Uh, for hardiness. One of the things you find out with persimmons is the habit of growth of persimmon is crazy. You know, some of them are very upright and some of them are very prostate, almost to the form of weeping. And there's also doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason that I could tell about which parents going to produce which type. So in these plants, I'm going to get this cool variability of these real upright plants and these real kind of pendulous weeping ones. So it's been, it's fun. It's going to continue to be fun. I've planted probably 200 or so grafted persimmons here so far. And I think maybe four of them have lived so far. And so of those four, I'm going to graft obviously more of those and I'll continue to plan mm-hmm. out different cultivars to see if any of them um, show any more hardiness than the other ones I've grown so far. I've also getting better at making plants uh, more prepared for zone four before I put the babies out there. You know, if I let them get to be um, a little bit more teenage, they seem to do a little bit better than if I put them out there when they're six. The, uh, you know, the equivalent of a six-year-old human, right? Small mm-hmm. baby plant does not want to be out when it's 20 below and the wind is howling. So they can be in your, in your cooler or somewhere more protected like that? Yeah, they go in the root cellar. Yeah. Yeah, root cellar. Um, you know, most of the grafts I do here, all the nut trees and most of the fruit trees spend the first winter in the, in the root cellar, which is, you know, another, it's a lot more stuff that has to get done, additional costs and a whole other step, which if I'd stayed there in Pennsylvania, I wouldn't have to worry about, right? <laughs> in a zone six. Zone six. It's right. such a different, it's such a different scene, you know, than zone, uh, 
end zone for it really is. Well, thank you, Buzz. I really appreciate it. As we start to wrap up here, I want to both say I'd love to do another talk with you where we just talk about your uh, nursery operation and we can get into some more questions that I want to explore with you just around species and yeah sounds great. I'd love to come back and talk with you some more cool thank I you do, I do tend to ramble I'm aware of that that's perfect <laughs> so as but as we wrap up I wondered if you'd humor me with kind of projecting a little about where where do you see the the future of of agroforestry permaculture landscapes um you know investors coming into this uh I love the the phrase productive buffers I think they seem like one application we could all get excited about because those buffers would be from what you were sharing, returning these beautiful, majestic upper story nut trees into their, in a sense, rightful place in the landscape, which are these rich alluvial floodplain ecologies, right? Yeah. This, what are these opportunities you think? Do you see the, how do we, how do we, let's say, avoid the mistakes of the past, which perhaps could have been in some sense having wealthy uh, proponents of tree crops getting behind them. But then, you know, as we've seen here, we are in the future, how many of those estates that were planted out, did those stay around in not that many? And then how much does this type of planting potentially become a real, uh, a real asset for future food security, for food sovereignty, for communities? Yeah, that's a big question, right? Um, yeah. So I think that when we finally get serious about uh, carbon sequestration, the conversion of row crop land into tree crops is going to be a huge deal. And I think that will probably be incentivized by um, an intelligent government that's trying to sequester carbon um, quickly and effectively. So I think the incentive incentivization of that process is important somehow, because without that, if it's going to fall on the people just to experiment and uh, put it together. Um, through grit, it's going to take a long, long time. Whereas if we apply ourselves as a culture, it's very different. It's a very different way things happen when you can apply resources, when you can decide, hey, you know, we're going to take a part of the New Deal and mm -hmm. grow tree crops. A lot of those tree, a lot of those trees that were discovered or that were discovered down are still being grown today. And that was how that work got done. It was incentivized. The proper people were involved and the government was a partner, the government, the larger community, whatever, the resource part, the money part, um, is it's important that we have that somehow. What's happening now is kind of interesting is the, um, there are some larger, um, you know, plantings in the 100 to 400 acre size mm -hmm. that are being done because uh, those farms those lands there are farms so they're they're scheduled to a you know all, all the money that's spent improving the farm is deduct is a deduction complete deduction um 
the farm can be in, enrolled in a conservation program. And so there's tax incentive there. And you actually get paid per the acre if you grow the right plants for that. Um, but you can also, carbon credits, carbon credits can be sold right now to Europe from plantings that are getting done here. So the people that are taking their money out of the stock market and putting it in tree plantings are getting multiple streams of income back to help cover that. I'm sure you're aware of this, this, these programs, this kind of stuff. I hadn't heard that that detail, what you just shared about the carbon credits. Oh, Europe. yeah. Apparently, you can sell the carbon credits on the market where they're being sold in Europe, and that money comes back to you as carbon credits, which are then bought and you know, are needed in Europe to be doing for offset. Because mm -hmm. apparently that's already happening there. You know, we're living in a different place. I am not up to date on this. So take what I say with a grain of salt. This is how this has been explained to me. Mm -hmm. That you know, these uh and I'm assuming since this land is uh you know, it's there's probably some kind of a um you know, it's a it's a commercial property as it were a farm, and it's probably you're probably allowed to um depreciate that farm over time which would give appreciation, accumulated depreciation to people that own it. It's probably another way they're, they're uh, Getting you know, incentivizing themselves to get tax credits. But that that kind of stuff is important and needs to happen and should be encouraged, not, not discouraged. Um, how long that's going to take, if we'll ever see it in my lifetime, I mean, things could turn on a dime if they have to, Andrew. We've seen it before, right? You know, mm -hmm. stuff happens. You know, not that many people are... Well, there's enough people alive now. Says no. Remember when OPEC shut us off in '73 or '4, whenever that was, for fuel, oil, yeah, and gas. Uh, the response in this country in less than 12 months was we reduced our we reduced our uh, consumption of uh, gasoline and fossil fuels by 25 percent mm -hmm. in one year. And so it was a little painful getting started, but once we once we once we felt the sting, everybody pitched right in, like, oh yeah. So let's let's make four cylinder cars, let's make high mileage cars. You know, let's let's insulate our houses, let's get better light bulbs. All that stuff is all kind of came from that that OPEC oil embargo in '74. Of course, OPEC wasn't foolish right. enough to do that again because that just cost them way too much money right, <laughs> right away. You know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, of course. You know, my worry is nowadays we'd just be the Arctic would just be a hundred percent drilled. You know. Right. They didn't know about they didn't know about the Arctic in those days. Yeah. So other decisions were reached. But my point being is, you know, things can turn, things can change if it has to, if if there's a sting involved. And there's a yeah. lot of stings coming up. I think there's a lot of stings in our near future coming. That uh, mm -hmm. some of them might be anticipated. I think some of them are not. Right. Um, and they cannot be anticipated because they're going to come from left field. Um, so that that may change how all this looks. Um, in the future, but you know, as long as things are um, super easy and cash is going, 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 and you know, it's progress, progress, progress of the way we've done it, I don't think we're going to see too much change. Right. You know, we're going to need we're going to need something to change the playing field for us to see a big movement towards what we've been talking about. You know, the the people that are excited about it are shoehorning it. They're making it happen. You know, the chestnut growers are just astounded by how many chestnut trees are being planted across this country in the last few years and projected for the next few. Um, because we import, I think it's 90 plus percent of the chestnuts we consume are imported. Mm. So there's plenty of room to get more chestnuts 
in mm-hmm. in this country under production, and they're they're really not that difficult to grow or process for fresh sale. Right. So that's happening. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if that answers your question. Yeah. No, that's great. Thank you. That's exactly what I wanted to explore. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's really an important conversation to continue and, and see where these possibilities go with bringing about this kind of cultural change and landscape mosaic. It's a whole yeah. a focus of ours is in this bringing the plantings into the public sector more in the hopes that they, as you're seeing, you know, the the plantings that are done for universities that are done for arboretums or, you know, um, protected because they're on an institution could correspond to publicly owned land as well. Yeah. So like the sleeping giant park example is the well, kind uh, of thing. Clem- uh, Clemson university is putting in a huge planting. Yeah. Of all these plants right now, they're just, you know, they're deep into in probably more than halfway through putting it all in. And so are they, are they getting some nursery stock from you for that? Yeah, some they are, yes. And from yeah. everyone who's everyone like me who's producing plants, they're getting they're looking to get quite the collection there. And it's that's going to be a beautiful planting. So I look forward to watching that one grow. That's yeah. Clemson University. Clemson University. And where are they? Dude, you had to ask that, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Down south. Down south. Okay. Down south. Oh, so they can grow a lot of stuff. Below, yeah, below Virginia. They're oh, they're yeah. All- okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, they're down that way. I'm not exactly Where land sure. is cheap and you can. Well, I don't think it's cheap where <laughs> Clemson is, but they're they're committing a bunch of their uh, campus land to these plantings. All planted by the students, designed by people that are alumni. It's a great, it's a great planting. It's one I know of that I'm excited by. Yeah. Is there some person who works there who's behind it? Is there like an individual? I think there must. I think there must be. Yeah. And then the the person that's coordinating the plant buying is uh, Joe Pizzo. Uh huh. From White Lion Farm in uh, Utica, Utica, New York. Um, so he's been coordinating the, the the plant list for them, putting that together. Mm-hmm. So it's been fun. And he's a he's a friend. He's another another person like me used to, you know putting together his own collection on his farm in Utica, New York. Mm-hmm. Zone five. Yeah, there's a lot of work in New York. I mean, I'm near enough to New York. I can see the work. It's, I see the stuff happen all the time. So there's a lot of work in New York getting done. Hazelnut, um, chestnut, and then there are already a bunch of people growing uh, tree crops there, like me. Yeah. You know, Akiva's there. Um, Brian uh, Caldwell has chestnuts that are, I think, 30 years old at this point. Um, Who else is up there? Oh, Aziz Nutty Ridge, you know, chestnuts, heart nuts, and most hazelnuts. He's really pushed hazelnuts hard, 35 years. Uh, Jeff Z has been and his family have been breeding chestnuts, and so they're uh, they're just releasing their first selections that are, you know, for that region. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now the Carl Albers, uh, there's a lot of people up there in New York State working. Yeah, yeah. Rusty Russell. Well, this is great, Buzz. Thank you. These my pro- pleasure. Folks are going to learn a lot listening to this. Yeah. Really? Uh, any party? Any last parting thing you want to hear from me? What What do you What do you want to share? What are your uh, What are your parting thoughts for us about 
your up upcoming year what's uh what are you looking ahead to what what's what's inspiring for you in 2023 um yeah i'm looking for you know, i just retired to the farm last year so i stopped my you know construction business day job thing to be on the farm so i'm re- and then last year was a bit i kind of felt like i had a tiger by the tail um mm-hmm. and that i was trying to get a lot done finish a lot of things that were started get a lot of things done and kind of get ready. So I'm looking forward this year to having a, a little more, hopefully a more even pace. And that looks like that's going to happen. That's better for me. Um, I get to focus a little more on my long-term plan here rather than just, you know, I, I can respond uh, intelligently rather than just, uh, you know, react, react, react. So. so you have some good, some good helpers there along the way. Yes, I'm blessed to have excellent people. Um, the one one person that works for me is this will be their sixth season with me, and uh, they're they're really important part of what I do. Um, I'm very happy to have them working with me. That's great. Well, I look forward to coming up and visit visiting you soon. I'm when were you here last? What time of year was it? It was April. April last was, year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. maybe you come when everything's leafed out this year more like may oh wait you're coming up or it's already scheduled yeah something like that when is it no i'm flexible i'm flexible. I thought you up here for another reason too though i but that's way in july i've got oh, that's, it that's, that's a good time to be here for yeah. seeing the plants that's a great time right i look forward well, to I that also, I, I want to continue to learn some of the grafting and other things that you were showing me well you just keep after me man you'll get up here yep absolutely yeah. All right, Andrew, thank you so much. Look forward to the next chat. Thank you, Buzz. Have a good rest of your day, man. Take care. You too, buddy. That concludes another session of Permaculture Perspectives. I hope you enjoyed my in-depth interview with Buzz Fervor. He'll be back for some more with us to continue many of the topics that we just started on today. And my next interview is with Mark Lakeman. So keep your ears peeled for Communitecture and Portland's Dignity Village designer talking with Andrew Faust on Permaculture Perspectives. Enjoy the rest of your day and check us out on Instagram at Permaculture Living and on Facebook at Center for Bioregional Living and on the web at permaculturenewyork.com.